0: If your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter sixteen. Genesis chapter sixteen. So, if you were going to write a family history. Your own family. What story is there that you wouldn't put in there? I know you've got one. There's a family story. There's there's something in your history there that you would withhold from that family history. Yeah, you've got one. I I've got one too. We we have several. This story that we're about to read is one of the it's it's one of those accountings that helps me when I think about the Bible. When when I struggle, which I do from time to time with I I, I struggle with the authenticity of the Bible. I occasionally I, I think um, gosh, is it, could it really be? And, and you know, there's little doubts sometimes that creep in over, you know, they're not big, they're not looming, but occasionally there's a little twinge there. And I, and, and I just struggle with, with the Bible. I, I struggle with this big story. I, I struggle sometimes with whether or not God exists and um, what it is that we're doing here on this planet and how I got here. And, you know, those big questions, all right? I just I occasionally... I sit back and I look into the night sky and I wonder about things. This story helps me. There are, there are a number of them, but this is one of them that I think, you know, uh, someone who's trying to make it up, somebody who's trying to tell a story that is a really good story and they're trying to call us to just all be better people and, and to just do good, better things and to do it the right way. They don't write this story and include it. And so this story helps me to see and to know the God of the Bible as a God who loves us, who isn't, it, it, it's, a, it's one of those stories that isn't just there to tell you to buck up and get it all together. It's a story that's there that paints a picture, a real picture, of men and women who don't have it all together, and yet God loves us and pursues us anyways. Genesis chapter 16, let's read it together, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with, my sa- sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And So, after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar And gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave his name. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word. And we want to ask now that our meditations upon it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. Pray it for your glory and for our good. Amen. So we're going to talk this morning. the sermon title is "Fainting Fits of Faith." And um, we're going to look at it under these three um, headings: How it often happens, the way it usually ends, and the God who always surprises. How it often happens." As I said, this is one of those stories that when I doubt parts of the Bible, this story comes to me and I'm comforted. I'm reminded that God is there. He is real. He deals with real people, with real issues, with real struggles in life. It's not the kind of story that makes it into the family photo album. It isn't the kind of story that you share with guests when they come over for a first visit. In fact, Uh, This is a story that you usually leave out when you're trying to make a good impression. But this is the kind of story that gives us really great hope. The first three verses here set up for us the feeling of despair that must have been creeping into the lives of Sarai and Abraham. It sets... Really for us, that that sense of, of hopelessness, because God had promised Abraham that he would have a son. He had promised Abraham that he, that he would be a blessing to the nations. He had told Abram that he would have descendants so numerous that they, that they would be like the dust of the earth. And he had told Abram that he would have children and descendants so numerous that they would be like the stars in the heavens. And now here we are, and the passage just, it gives us a little hint in verse 3. Abram had been living in the land of Canaan, how long? Ten years And so there's no doubt there's this despair that is setting in, because here they are ten years later, and what has happened on the baby front? Nothing. Nada. And so Sarah and Abram are scratching their heads ten years in, and they're doubting. If you look at verse 2, you'll see Sarah's thoughts. She says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. And so she comes up with a fix. She comes up with this fix and her idea is to go and to borrow a tradition from the world and to bring it in and to use it. Listen. To help God along. At the second part of verse 2, you see that. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. What? Perhaps I can build a family through her. Hey... Sarah's not trying to go out and do this for her own. She's taking the promises of God and she's saying to herself, it hasn't happened. There must be something going on here. Maybe the problem is with me, Abraham. Maybe you should sleep with my slave, Hagar, and the Lord can build a family, our family, through her. Now, this was a... Fairly common practice in ancient days. The custom was, if you got married and your wife didn't produce a child for you within those first two years, you could buy a servant like this and she would bear your children for you. I know you're, you're looking at me like I'm making this up. I didn't write the story, and I didn't do this, but think about this, right? This is very important, because Abraham and Sarah want a family, and so they want this to to happen. Now, today, we have all sorts of medical techniques and things that we do to help people have children, okay? It's a very important part of, of people coming together. And so in and, and their thinking and the way that they did things back then, that was part and parcel of it. And so they went to plan B and that was plan B. Abraham and, and, and Hagar would sleep together and she would bear him a son and the family line would go on that way. Whew. All of this, however, stems from the fact that Abram and Sarah were not comfortable with God's timetable. They weren't comfortable with the way God was moving at the speed at which he was moving. See, the time was dragging on and their hearts were languishing. I like what Ralph Davis says at this point. He says that the writer puts down the facts on the page almost as if to say, I understand your plight. The waiting is hard sometimes. I'm going to do my best right here to throw out an illustration that some of you will understand. Tom Petty. That didn't work. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, sometimes waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. I'm not going to sing it. The waiting is the hardest part. And isn't it true? Sometimes waiting on the Lord to move and to act is the hardest part. Perhaps you're waiting on a son or a daughter to come back to the faith, a faith that you instructed them in, you you loved them in, you brought them up in, and, and perhaps they've gone off, and you're waiting, you're trusting, you're calling on the Lord for that son or daughter to come home. Perhaps you're struggling with an ailment, you're, you're battling something, a darkness of the soul, and you're waiting for light to break in. You want to see and know that the Lord is there. There are times when we're tempted just to strike out on our own and to find our own way in this world and to do it our way, and, and hope that the Lord is going to meet us there. I want to take you to a Psalm. If you've got your Bibles turned to Psalm 13. And I, I want you to see. I'm, I'm not. I'm not just making this up. It's. Not necessarily in the text. It's not explicit there, right, that that they were struggling. But we're getting these little tidbits that Abraham and Sarai were struggling. And so we go to a passage like Psalm 13 and, and listen to the way the psalmist expresses it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But... I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. That's David. Now, you know enough about David's life to know that David didn't always arrive at verse 5 and 6 right away, did he? You see, sometimes waiting on the Lord is hard. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, you can Write that down and look it up later. But there you see, right, the martyrs crying out to God. And what is their cry? How long, O Lord? How long? And so this is how it often happens. Time drags on. There's a sense in which God isn't acting. And so we do. And we don't always act. The way that he would have us act. And that's what we're seeing right here with Abraham and Sarah. Can you identify with them? I can. That's how it often happens. How about the way it usually ends? So in the story, of course, she conceives. It's a no-brainer. And what happened next? What do you think took place next? Well, when you look at it, um, what you read here, in the second half of verse 4 is this. When she knew, that's Hagar, that she was pregnant, Hagar began to despise her mistress, Sarah. Ah. She began to despise her mistress, Sarah. Don't know exactly how she did it, but I You could probably venture a guess at how this looked. A little skip in her step, a little pep, a little poke here, a little prod there. See, Sarah? This wasn't so hard, was it? Don't you wish you could have done this for Abraham? A little bit of, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And then, the animosity builds. And you say, well, duh. What did you expect? What did you think would happen, Sarah? See, but Sarah hatched the plan. She wanted the family there to grow. She wanted, she thought she was doing the right thing. And so when the animosity builds and the relationship sours, now she looks at it and she says, How is this happening? Why is this happening? She's caught off guard by the crumbling relationship. And so she goes and she complains to Abraham about the relationship issues that she's having with Hagar. And Abraham, being the patriarchal leader of his clan and loving Sarah so much and understanding her pain and the sorrow and the struggles that she is going through, promises to do absolutely nothing for her. Look at at Abraham's response. Your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you think best. Abram does nothing. He doesn't step in to stop it. He doesn't step in to help her. He He does absolutely nothing but wash his hands and send Sarah back to deal with it on her own. And so Sarah goes back. And she mistreats Hagar. One author notes that it was permissible in some ancient societies to wash out the mouth of a misbehaving concubine with a quart of salt. Is that what she did? The saline solution? We can't be sure. But whatever the situation It wasn't anything that Hagar was interested in being a part of. And so she left. She fled. She took off for sure, which we believe is probably on the way to Egypt. That would make sense. She was an Egyptian servant. This is the section, when you read it, where you begin to get the sense, you understand that there were consequences for what had taken place. If Moses if Moses were shading the first part of the story, those first three verses, to kind of bring us in and to give us a sense of, hey, there's, uh, don't you understand their plight? Which seems to be what he was doing at the beginning. And what he seems to be doing in this section is he seems to be showing us, hey, remember, remember the fall. Remember Genesis chapter three. See, there's a couple of sections here. There's some language in this section that gets repeated. And it's language that comes right out of Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve and their situation together and the fall. The NIV doesn't capture it as well, but the the English Standard Version gives it to us this way. And here is here are the two phrases. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And then in the next verse, took Hagar and gave her to Sarah, took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Those two phrases have the exact same words as two phrases that come out of Genesis chapter 3. And those are, in verse 17, that Abram listened to Eve. And then in, this, uh, and then in, the, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 3, it is that Eve took of the fruit and she gave it to her husband Adam. And so it seems as if what the writer is doing is saying, remember the fall way back there in Genesis 3? Well, guess what? Here it is again in Genesis 16. There's a shadow that's being cast from Genesis 3 to Genesis 16. It's Listen, it will be with us all the way to the end until it's finally done away with. And so that fall is going to show up over and over and over. It it is the struggle of every person of Scripture. It's your struggle. It's my struggle. And so here it is. The fall doesn't just hover over chapter 16 either. It It hovers over your life. It hovers over my life. Remember we said we've said several times here that the admission of sin isn't the end of you it's the beginning of you I mean first John tells us if we what confess our sin then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin So confession isn't the end of us confession is the beginning of us So that second section just reminds us of how it usually ends. Bad stuff happens when we take matters into our own hands, when we rush the plan of God, when we don't wait on Him and we go our own way. But that's not the end of the story. It never is the end of the story. And so I want you to see this third and final point, the God who always surprises. I'm going to follow Ralph Davis here. You break this last section beginning in verse 7 down through verse 16 really into four parts. And the first part, you see his mercy, verses 7 to 11. And there in those verses, verses 7 to 11, the angel of the Lord is mentioned not once, not twice, not three times, four times. And so you see right there the angel of the Lord mentioned four times. And what's interesting about this is Bruce Waltke says that um, this is the only known instance in ancient Near, near uh, Eastern literature in which a deity addresses a woman by name. It's the only time that happens. And think about it. Who is God addressing by name? Who is the angel of the Lord addressing by name? An Egyptian servant girl. Wow. He comes and he pursues her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord. It isn't always the case. But many times in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, many times we're probably seeing and reading about the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. What was called a, yeah. So, the angel of the Lord comes and pursues a servant girl, calls her by name, And shows himself to her. That's the merciful God that we serve. That's the loving, pursuing God that we serve. And then he gives very powerful direction to her. And the powerful direction as in verse 9. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. We don't always like the Lord's plan for us. It isn't always the easiest route. I'm thinking of a passage like Matthew 18. If your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to write him off and go call your neighbor and tell him all about him. No. If your brother has something against you, you're to go to him, right? That's that's the kind of logic the gospel calls us to live by. And so here, right, the angel of the Lord comes and gives very difficult direction to Sarai. Sarai, what are you doing out here? What are you doing down here? Where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I came from that really messed up house back there and I'm headed to Egypt. And the angel of the Lord says, no you're not. You're headed back to your mistress and you're going to submit to her. And if you think about it this way, think of, think about it like this. Where was the place of blessing? The place of blessing was the house of Abraham. And so for her to go back even though difficult, was going to be the best place for her because God was blessing Abraham. And that was going to spill over into Hagar's life. And so he sends Hagar back. And then you see his comfort. God speaks of the son that she will bear, and he tells her to call his name Ishmael, which means... God hears. Now you read, you read a little bit more of this and you find out, well, he's, he's gonna be a tough cookie. Right? Oh, he's gonna be a wild donkey of a man. He's gonna be, he's, he's gonna have his hand raised against everybody and everybody's gonna have their hand raised against him. That's not exactly the, it's not exactly the, um, encouragement that a new mother wants. But in giving him the name Ishmael, he hears. He was saying that he had heard of her affliction. He knew of her troubled heart. He knew of the difficult place that she was in. And isn't that a good thing? To know that God has heard you? To know that He has met with you? To know that He has comforted you? and that he has listened to your affliction absolutely and that he didn't leave her on the road to Egypt but he come and comes and he he meets with her and he calls her back and he, he brings her back to the house of blessing absolutely it was a comfort to Hagar and then finally God is marvelous in his wonder look at verse 13 verse 13 she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Now, it's important. Think about this. It, she contributed. She contributed to the dysfunctionality of that home. OK, because. As all of this happened, she was the one that began to mistreat her mistress, Sarai. She was the one that poked and prodded and pushed. She was the one that stirred up the conflict and the strife in the home. Sarah is just trying to move the family along. Hagar comes and she stirs it all up. And so she has, she is, part and parcel of the problem in the house. She is a responsible party too. But there's there's something very attractive here, isn't there, about God who strikes out after Hagar and brings her back, who loves her and nurtures her and now calls her back to this family? Yes, absolutely. And And here... Is our great hope. In the words of Hagar. I have now. Seen. The one. Who sees me. You do realize. That you only see. And know who God is. Because he's let you. When. When. Jesus and Peter were having a conversation and Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds and says, you're the Son of God. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. See, you only know who God is, because He's revealed Himself to you. And isn't that what she's saying? You are the one, right? I have now seen, I have now known, I have now experienced the comfort of the one who sees me, the one who knows all about me, the one who created me. And that's really the story of the New Testament, isn't it? We read in the New Testament that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You have now seen the one who sees you. And friends, that is the good news. That is the good news. God didn't shy away from you. If you know him, if you trust in Jesus, it is because you have seen the one who sees you. The one that sees you has pursued you, is pursuing you, will pursue you, no matter what your struggle No matter how feckless your faith is, no matter how many times your faith faints, he doesn't faint. He doesn't stop. Go back to 15. Go back to last week and remember what we said? God passed through those pieces of the animal just in case Abraham failed on his part of the deal. And then in the very next chapter, Abraham fails. And Sarah fails. And God says what? Still here. Still loving you. Still pursuing you. Still going to hold it all together. Because He's the covenant-making God. Because He is the God who loves us and pursues us and chases after us and brings us back to the family and we try to go back to Egypt. If you don't believe me, this morning set before you is a picture in the Lord's Supper. We're going to come. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And, and I want you to remember and to be reminded that in the Lord's Supper, there is a picture of a God who pursues sinners. It's a picture God the Father sent Jesus the Son into the world to save sinners like you and I. That's the message of the Lord's Supper. That He's paid it all for you and for me while we were yet sinners. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You. We want to praise You this morning. For the story of grace found even in the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Father, not a story we would have written, not a story we would have included in our story, and yet you saw fit to include it. The story of our father Abraham to remind us that even when our faith fails, you don't. So let us hear that today. Let us celebrate your love, your mercy, your grace. As we recommit before you in the supper that everything you've commanded we will do. And we will follow hard after you for you are our God and we are your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.